Okay, so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1. So go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you're not there. Isaiah 1. Now, I I know this might not be the common common practice here. I, I don't think it is, so forgive me if I'm misspeaking. But I'm kind of old-fashioned in a sense where I love whenever we open the Bible and we turn to Scripture and we stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you wouldn't mind uh, humoring me a little bit, if you're able to, would you, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to be in Isaiah 1. I'm going to start at verse number 10. So of course we're standing for the reading of God's Word out of respect to His Word. Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 10, the Bible says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but as you go through that passage in Isaiah and you're reading it, um, some very, very convicting words there from the prophet. But, but before we dive into that text, I just I want to ask us a few rhetorical questions, something to get you to think about as we proceed forward. I don't expect you to answer this out loud, but think about it in your own heart. Is the Bible what it claims to be? That is the inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God. Is the Bible what it claims to be? Now, of course, speaking to a Sunday night crowd, I would venture to guess everyone, and I, as I look around, people nodding their heads saying yes. So this means that what's on the pages of Scripture is not a suggestion. And if our opinion contradicts Scripture, it's our opinion that needs to change. Not the other way around, and many times we forget that in today's modern church era, particularly in the West. The, um, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith says this, I think it sums it up beautifully. 
where it states this about Scripture, saying, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. You see, culture doesn't dictate truth. God does. And He's revealed it through His Word. And so that's why I ask you, do you believe that the Bible is what it claims to be? Because that means, as we go through this text, as any other text in Scripture, we have to set our bias and our opinion to the side, and we have to let God's Word speak for Himself. Now, we read from Isaiah 1, and that's where... Uh, will be where I'll be speaking from this evening, uh, but just a little background knowledge to keep in your mind as we go through this that'll help us understand this text better. That will bring light to this text. Obviously, it's written by the prophet Isaiah, and it's written approximately 700 years before Christ. Uh, more than 700 years, but uh, 700 years before Christ's earthly ministry, and that's about 300 years uh, after King David that this text is written. And specifically, as Isaiah is addressing a group of people, he's addressing the southern kingdom of Judah. That's who he's speaking to. And so if Isaiah is addressing the southern kingdom of Judah, what we have to understand is that these words, as we speak, these words are directed towards God's covenant people. These words are not directed towards pagans or atheists. What God is saying here is towards His chosen nation. And the application for that in us today, and how this directly affects and applies to us today, that's us, His church, His covenant people. And so we can very easily transfer and draw that circle around ourselves as we're going through this. So looking back at the text, starting in verse number 10, we're going to go through this line by line and dissect this. Isaiah 1 verse 10 begins like this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now anytime you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, even people outside of the church, even pagans, know that if you're called a sodomite, that is not a positive term. That is not something you want to have on your resume, so to speak. It brings a very negative uh, connotation with it. And so God, right off the bat, is calling His covenant people vile and detestable. Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. So what's happening here? We understand that with Christ coming, we've done away with the Old Testament sacrificial system in the sense in which it used to be. And so when the Lord is saying, well, what are your sacrifices to me? I've had enough of these burnt offerings. What he's talking about is their worship. And he's calling out their worship. 
Moving to verse 12. When you come before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? So what he's talking about, when you come before me, what does that mean? When you come to me in public worship, when you come to me in public worship, you're not showing me reverence, is what God's saying. He's saying, who requires you this trampling of my courts? He's saying, when you're coming, you're showing me disrespect and you're spitting in my face. You think you're gathering for your Sunday worship, but really, you're disrespecting me in your attempt. Verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Now, remember that God commanded them to burn incense. He commanded them to make sacrifices. So, what's God doing here? Right? God, God commanded them to worship this way. What gives? Why is He calling it out? Well, I think you know the answer. This is because of hypocrisy. Finishing that verse, new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. God is saying you're hypocrites. You're acting. You're just pretending. You're going through all these religious rituals, but your heart is far, your heart is far from me. Moving into verse 14, he says, I am weary of bearing them. Right? Weary. We understand weary meaning tired. Ask you a question. Does God get tired? No. We'd all be in trouble if that happened. So this means something else. Right? It's a, it's a figure of speech. He's saying your worship makes me sick. Your celebrations, your programs, your special events, you raise your hand when you pray and sing. It's your religion. It's all a show. It's all a show for either a pagan world to look in or for to appease yourself and check something off the box. He says, I'm tired of it. It makes me sick. Verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayers, and we understand that the Jews used to pray by spreading their hands out and opening their hands. So he's talking about prayer now. I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, you're going to ask and you're going to pray and you're going to ask and you're going to beg and you're going to plead and you're going to pray again. You're going to have this faithful prayer life, but all the while being a hypocrite. I refuse to hear your prayers because of your sin. Is what the prophet is trying to communicate to the people. Finishing verse 15, I will not listen. And he says specifically why he will not listen. Right here is where it all hinges on. Your hands are covered with blood. God is saying, I refuse to hear your prayers because of your sin. Now, God confronts his his people's worship due to sin. And there's really two ways you can look at this. Uh, or there's two things that I should say the, the Texas communicate. There's a general sin happening amongst God's chosen people, and that's hypocrisy. That's the general sin. But God gets very specific with the sin here in verse 15. Right at the end of there, that is the specific sin. Your hands are covered with blood. So what does this mean? That God's covenant people 
that the most religious group of people on the planet are going around murdering people? What, what do they mean? What does God mean your hands are covered with blood? Well, what I want to attempt to do over the next few minutes is help you to understand what that means based upon the historical context of that. So you're in Isaiah. Uh, if you look back at Isaiah, or you're already in Isaiah 1, but look back at verse 1. Now, what we know about Isaiah is that he had a very lengthy ministry. And he served under four kings and are listed here right in verse 1. I'm just going to read verse 1 for you. In Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So these are the kings, these are the political uh, figureheads that were in power at the time of Isaiah's ministry. And you can find out more information about those kings, more specifically, um, in Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles. You can go there and you can look up and you can and see more about those kings. But we don't have time to go through every single detail there, but there's a few things I want to point out. So what we're going to do is keep your finger there in Isaiah. And flip back to Second Kings. Second Kings, we're going to be in chapter 15. Keeping in mind, what we're trying to understand is this backdrop in which Isaiah is speaking. And when he says, your hands are full of blood, can we get any details on what that means, because he's talking to Judah, his covenant people. So, 2 Kings 15, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says this, in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king and reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jocala of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So I'm going to stop there. I've given you enough information. Because they're saying this king, Uzziah, uh, he had done what was right and pleasing, except he made one fatal flaw. He didn't take down the high places. So if you don't know what the high places are, then that doesn't help you understand this text or what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 1. So these uh, these high places are really, think about your, your pagan worship center. This is a place where Pagan worship and idolatry occurs. And, but you also have to understand that part of this pagan worship was child sacrifice to a demon god by the name of Moloch. And he was commanded to remove these high places, get rid of these aisles, get rid of this child sacrifice, and he didn't. 
So when we start to understand that these high places are a place of idol worship, that children are sacrifices to demon God, it starts to open up this passage a little bit. Go to, uh, stay in 2 Kings, go to chapter 16 now. Just want to share something else with you. Go to chapter 16, I'm going to read one verse. 2 Kings 16, uh, just look at verse 3. Again, this is during Isaiah's ministry, speaking to Judah. And remember, they just let a little bit of idolatry in. They allowed just a little bit of child sacrifice. Well, let's see where that leads. Look at verse number 3. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations who the Lord had driven out of, uh, driven out from before the sons of Israel. See, this is talking about Ahaz. Okay? In that verse I just read to you, I don't know if you caught it, but it says that he allowed his son to pass through the fire. What's that talking about? Child sacrifice. It came to the point where this king, who was residing over God's covenant people and would be a Jew himself, was even participating in child sacrifice to the to the point that he sacrificed his own child to this false demon god. And then it's not till Second Kings eighteen. We won't go there, but in Second Kings eighteen, you can look at it in your own time. In 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah comes along, and if you know the story, what does he do? He destroys the high places, and he abolishes child sacrifice. But, understand this. 2 Kings 18, with Hezekiah, in the timeline of Isaiah's ministry, when is that? It's towards the end of Isaiah's ministry. Now go back to Isaiah 1. Because if we're in Isaiah 1, thinking of a linear timeline, what part of Isaiah's ministry are we in? We're at the beginning. This is the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. Child sacrifice wasn't abolished until the end. So in the context of what we're studying, and I'm hoping you're seeing, is that child sacrifice was alive and well in the land. Now, perhaps someone could make the argument that perhaps, I don't know, they, they didn't know, they were ignorant. You know, Maybe God wasn't specific enough in His commandments. But just in case, we're going to try to argue from that vantage point. I want to share with you Leviticus 20. If you want to turn there, you can turn there. But listen, I'm going to read Leviticus 20. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 5. Leviticus 20, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel, or from whom the alien sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch, so there's the name, very specific, right? Gives his sons to Moloch, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. 
I will also set my face against the man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary and my profane, uh, and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, shall ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family. And I will cut off from among their people both him and all of those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Moloch. And so what God says very clearly in those scripture, in those verses that I just read from scripture, do not sacrifice your children to Moloch. That's crystal clear. He says, if you do, I read it there. He says, I will set my face against you. What does that mean? He says, I will pour out my wrath upon you. Leviticus, if you look at Leviticus 20, again, look at verse 4 specifically. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch so as to put him to death. And God is saying, if you ignore child sacrifice, if you ignore it, if you give it a pass, ignore it, play neutral, I will pour out my wrath upon you. God's very clear here. Do not sacrifice your children. Do not allow others to sacrifice your children. I'll go back to Isaiah 1. To understand when God says there in Isaiah 1 and verse 15 that your hands are covered in blood, this is the backdrop. This is what's going on in the land. This is what that means. Because I think as when I... I opened up this morning, I said, let's draw a circle around ourselves. Let's see how the Lord speaks to us individually or us as a family. When it says our hands are covered with blood, how does that particular apply to me or us? Because if God says, I don't want your worship, I don't want your prayers, they make me sick. And if I'm doing something wrong, I want to know. And God is telling us very specifically what it is that has offended Him. Our hands are covered His blood. God is telling His people that they're guilty due to their neutrality towards child sacrifice. So here's the reality check, church. Something you are well aware of. Child sacrifice still occurs today. Although we give it a politically correct name, we call it abortion. Because in... Just what abortion means, if you break that down, abort, if you abort the mission, right? What does abort mean? Abort means to terminate. So you're terminating something in an abortion. What's being terminated here? Well, if life begins at fertilization, what's being terminated then is a human life. So anytime we end a human life when it's committed no crime, we punish it by death when it's committed no crime, what is that? That's how we would describe in our laws as murder. 
Abortion isn't some gray area in which the Bible is silent about because there would be churches and there would be pastors that would say that. Yeah, the Bible doesn't, it's not really clear. There's no gray area. I, I think I've stated that case very clearly here over the last 20 minutes. Abortion isn't some gray area in which this Bible is silent. And in Leviticus 20, God said, do not sacrifice your children and do not give a pass to others that do it. So when you think about all that was said there in Isaiah 1, all these things that God hates and He rejects, when you think about that list there, how much of the worship of the American church is hated by the Lord due to the participation, permission, and indifference towards child sacrifice? Because I don't, I don't know if we can actually ever put a number on it because of now you have to deal with uh, the abortion pill and everything else. But there's more, there's well over 65 million image bearers of God since 1973. So how much of the worship of the American church is hated by the Lord due to our participation? permission, and indifference towards child sacrifice. brings me no joy to say this, but our hands are full of blood. So how should we respond? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Looking back at Isaiah 1, let's pick it back where we left off. Verse 16. Isaiah 1, verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. What's the Lord saying there? You can sum it up in one word. Repent. God's saying repent. Now notice when God says repent, He gives a very particular prescription of what repentance in this area looks like. Look, starting at verse 17. Learn to do good. I'm going to stop there. Learn to do good. Well, who defines what good is? God does. God defines what is good. And so this means we are to be obedient to God's law. That's how we learn to do good. Next it says, seek justice. Demand justice to be established. So that would mean in the area of abortion, equal protection. Not incremental approaches where we give the death sentence or permission of a death sentence to a certain class of the unborn. Equal protection. That would be God's version of justice, and that's the only version of justice that matters. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. That means correct the oppressors. Correct these oppressors, these lawmakers, these politicians, these industries that are supporting child sacrifice in our land. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Right When we think of the orphan, we think of the widow. We should care for that group of people. But what that is identifying when you hear the orphan and the widow... 
is this is a group or a class of people who cannot defend themselves. Yes, we can make a case that uh, aborted children are the fatherless and they are orphans, but this is a group of people who cannot defend themselves, and I would say that that accurately describes our preborn neighbor as their mothers willingly walk them in to the local child sacrifice centers. Look at verse 18. So when it comes to Isaiah 1, verse 18 is where people like to pick it up uh, and quote this. And I do as well. But that does us no good if we don't understand what came before in those verses. Look at verse 18. Come now and let us debate your case, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. What the Lord prom this is what the Lord promises to those who repent. What's 18 talking about? Forgiveness. A clean slate. That now, when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Not our filth-stained past and not the child sacrifices that we've permitted in this land. So, in Isaiah 1, what's the application? What can we take away with? Well, I would put it in a few different ways. So one, if you have been a willing participate in the sin of abortion, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. He is the only one that can relieve anybody of that burden. There's no 10-step program. There's no substance or drug in the world powerful enough to overcome that. It's only through Christ. If you've been a willing participant of that sin, turn to Christ. If you're indifferent towards abortion, repent. Repent of your apathy. Proverbs 24.11 says this, Rescue those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to the slaughter. If you let that sink in for a moment where it says rescue those who are being taken away to death. That's, that means interpose for. We have to be active. It does not say there in Proverbs 24, it does not say donate large sums of money. That money's helpful, and that's a blessing, but that's not the command given there. It does not say pray for those being taken away to death. Again, I'm not against prayer. Obviously, I'm not. But that's not what the passage says. And it certainly does not say regulate those being taken away to death. That's a political strategy. That's not God's strategy. It says rescue, interpose on behalf of. That means take action. So our application is simple. That we can, we've been a willing participant, turn to Christ, repent of that apathy if that's where you're at. But also too, if you've never been involved in this area of ministry, although uncomfortable, it's God's clear call in Scripture. 
We need to investigate and learn how you can get involved. And I think probably everyone in this room was here when I spoke this morning. I talked about different um, people bring different skill sets to the abortion to the abortion mill in that industry. I I will interpose. I'll confront. I'll street preach. I can't counsel. I can go and I can interpose and I can street preach. But I'm a lot more effective when I have saints behind me holding a sign and praying. So, investigate, learn, pray about how you can get involved. I'm going to leave here in a few minutes and maybe you're thankful for that. But, talk to your elders. Talk to Pastor Joe, Aaron, Luke. How you particularly can get involved in this fight. Now, I know this isn't the greatest example right now because uh, from what I understand, I don't really follow football. But the but this uh the season is basically being flushed down the toilet with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Usually it's not that way. Usually Pittsburgh Steelers are diehard fans waving their terrible towels, and you could describe them as passionate. Imagine if the church in PA, imagine if the church was as passionate about ending child sacrifice as Steeler fans are for their hometown team. Right? Francis Schaefer says that every abortion clinic should have a sign on the door that says, open by permission of the local church. It brings me no joy to say that I, I agree with that statement. Because if we were as passionate as a church, and I'm talking capital C, I'm not talking specifically Redeemer. You guys are great, and I appreciate your support. Many of the brothers here, brothers and sisters, are there with me on the front lines. And I'm grateful for that. All glory to Christ for that. But if we were as passionate as a church, a corporate church, as any time our Second Amendment rights are threatened, Again, child sacrifice wouldn't be an issue in our land. So investigate. Talk to your elders. Pray about how you can get involved in this fight, whatever that capacity looks like. So, how does God see your worship? Going back to Isaiah 1. trying to I'm bringing this plane in for a landing, so to speak. How does God see your worship? How does God see my worship? Well, if we're guilty of hypocrisy, if our hands are full of blood, what does he say? He despises it. He hates it. But keep in mind and remember that he offers forgiveness, but it's on his terms, not ours. And his terms require repentance. Let's pray.